Hello, and welcome to another episode of Aconis the Contractor's Life, an unscripted, no-axe-to-grind podcast that discusses topics and issues with and within the contracting industry. So while our viewpoints and thoughts and our beliefs may not always mesh, uh, we all are American patriots who believe in the American way, so much so that we serve the American way, and to the extent we can, we still do. From Washington State, folks, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. I myself am a U.S. military veteran of the United States Marine Corps and a former private security contractor. Uh, now that you're up to speed on that, allow me to introduce this uh, episode's guest, uh, Mr. Joe Wright. He began his federal career in 1977 as a Border Patrol agent in San Diego with the then INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service. Um, it's now ICE and Customs and Border Patrol and, and a mishmash of things. He can sort this all out for us. He was an inspector in San Ysidro, Miami International Airport. He, he's worked as a deportation officer. He's worked with Customs, the FBI, uh, and others. <laughs> he's uh, retired in 2007, began his contracting that year, serving four years in Iraq and Afghanistan, He's currently with the Department of State on uh, on, on contracts, uh, doing stuff. So with that said, folks, let me introduce Mr. Steve, uh, Joe Wright. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I sure appreciate it, Scott. Oh, absolutely, man. It is my sincere pleasure. Uh, man, you've got you've got a, a wealth of uh, uh, on the ground experience out there, uh, both as a federal agent and as a contractor. Um, so for the folks that are listening, uh, Joe, can you uh, explain to them um, fairly briefly anyway uh, who you are and what you did prior to becoming a contractor for those uh, pro- for those 30 years? Sure. Um, I started my career as a U.S. Border Patrol agent. I was an agent in uh, San Diego and Miami. I was an inspector with the old INS, uh, like you had stated, uh, in San Isidro. Had been a supervisory inspector in uh, Miami International Airport and a deportation officer uh, at the Atlanta Penitentiary doing nothing but uh, Cuban Marielitos that came to the country in 1980. These are the Tony Montanas of the world. I left the Immigration Service in uh, 1986. I transferred to Jacksonville. I was a criminal investigator in the uh, air support branch. Uh, I was also a vessel commander uh, running the small go-fast interceptor boats and uh, switched over, became a special agent. I was a senior special agent in Jacksonville uh, right after 2001, uh, the day after, in fact, I became uh, a full-time member and founding member of the North Florida Joint Terrorism Task Force, the FBI, and I stayed there for about five years uh, working nothing but uh, terrorism cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I retired in 2007, and then I started uh the contracting in uh, shortly thereafter, and I've been doing it for about 10 years now. Wow. <laughs> so one has to surmise you enjoy what you're doing. I do. I really like it. Uh, uh, right now, I'm uh, uh, an independent contractor working for the State Department, supporting one of their initiatives, and uh, traveled to uh Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia, Indonesia, Jordan, um, you know, a couple of other countries. So, I mean, I have been all over the place, and it's pretty good uh, because you get to see all of these places that you've uh, read and seen on television, and, and uh, you get paid for doing it. So I really enjoy the travel. Right. Man, I'll bet. You know, and that's interesting uh, because that's come up a number of times in conversations uh, about the travel. And, uh, I mean, that's a great perk of the job. And for the most part, it's paid for by some government entity or the company we're working for, but usually anybody but us. And you get to see an awful lot of stuff off the beaten path. It's a whole different thing. Yeah. And, 
probably, uh, you know, if you're going to the Middle East or, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan, you usually have uh, your last uh, civilized uh, port, if you will, and it would be Dubai. So a lot of guys get to spend two or three days in Dubai. And if you've never been there, I mean, it is truly an international city and there is always something to do. Uh, and the people there are fascinating. They're from all over the world, and probably 80% of the people that inhabit the place are uh, are non-Emiratis. Hmm. So it's very interesting, and it's very affordable, actually. Interesting. Um, I, the, the numbers and the percentage you threw out there about that, I guess thinking about it, it makes a lot of sense, but I, I never thought about it. <laughs> but Because uh, I'm sure most people think that it uh, it would be – you know, Dubai uh, citizenry residents, you know, born and bred. But uh, that's interesting. And it, you're right, man. And it's huge, um, comparatively speaking. Uh, and it's and it is uh, they they do a good job of keeping it up. And that's uh, that's something that's that's really amazing. It doesn't really matter which city you go to in that region. Most of them take great pride in having a clean and safe environment. Do they not? Yes, uh, every one of them. And I asked a guy one time, uh, when I, my very first trip there, got there about 10 o'clock at night and was looking for a place to eat. And uh, there was a um, two or three restaurants together. And I and I asked the the concierge at the hotel. I said, uh, Hey, you know, is this is it safe to go around the corner? Because I had just come out of Iraq where it wasn't. And the guy looked me in the eye, and, and he said, in a British accent, he said, oh, my dear boy, he said, you're in, in the Emirates. He said, no one would, in an American, no one would dare touch you here because, uh, you know, they they have, uh, you know, a very secure uh, area there, you know, the entire city. And robberies and some of the things that, that – we see here in America, you know, they just simply don't happen over there. It's uh, very refreshing. Right. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, and, and, and I never really ventured out into Dubai or some of the other uh, surrounding uh, nation states there, uh, you know, a little bit, but I never really toured them as a tourist. I, I wanted to, but long story short, I didn't. Uh, I kept mostly to the airport and the surrounding areas because uh, I was always a nervous passenger, didn't want to miss the flight. But, man, it seemed like they were, when it comes to security in particular, I mean, you could just feel and sense, in addition to see, the security was everywhere, cameras, personnel. Yeah. I mean, um, they were, and it's amazing how uh, as long as you didn't pose or present a threat, uh, they were pretty humble and pretty uh, – uh, servile isn't the right word but i mean but they were uh you know pretty humble and willing to help yeah and not just the people behind the bar so <laughs> you know where i often found myself waiting for the layover <laughs> and this is what i usually tell people <clears throat> and I, and i travel to you know many countries there in the middle east and and, and others but primarily in the middle east Everybody knows what you have to do to be a good citizen, and all good citizens are in one little box. But if you decide that you want to rape and pillage and burn, uh, everybody knows that you'll be in the other box, and that's not a good box to be in because justice is immediate and swift there. They don't play around. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, well, you know, and oddly enough, it's not just in Dubai. It seems to be – in a lot of the countries, in, in countries that we don't frequently talk about, and, and I don't want to go down that list because uh, I, I won't get them all, but that is something. <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, but I mean, but you, you hearken to a good point that a lot of those countries take their safety and security seriously, uh, but they give you, for the most part, plenty of room to play and have fun um, and, and do yep. your thing. As Just mind your P's and Q's and everything will be fine. And if they That's ask you it. a question, just answer it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so, Joe, uh, so starting in your career in 1977 through 2007, uh, was there an aspect or a portion of it that uh, you think probably served you best or most uh, when, you, when you contracted, when you, when, you, when you made that transition 
Yeah, a lot of these contracts had back in the day, they had uh, openings for uh, border security advisors. And if you happen to have been a customs patrol officer or a border patrol agent, uh, you would you would have the prerequisites to uh, score very highly in their list of of uh, you know the the things that they were looking for. In fact, when I started uh, doing this, DynCorp International, that's a company that I'd worked for before. They were giving a $25,000 upfront bonus for any border patrolman that would sign on uh, to their contract. Uh, you stayed there 90. If you had to be on the job for 90 days, and boom, you got 25 grand upfront in addition to your your salary. Wow. So I, I would say wow. that uh, my background in the border patrol certainly helped. And then uh, when I transferred over to customs. Uh, you know, they're looking for people that had a lot of investigative expertise. Uh, you know, a lot of these jobs, you know, they, I had one job, they went down to the border every day, uh, uh, in Afghanistan, or excuse me, Iraq. And this border, uh, entry point was called the Surbatia port of entry, and it's right there on the border with, uh, Iran. And, uh, we would teach them how to conduct searches, either commercial cargo, uh, teach them what uh, items that they should charge, uh, you know, a, a higher duty rate. And, and if you do have an item like that, then those are the things that are more prone to to smuggling. Uh, so my background significantly helped me. And then after 9-11, uh, I had some expertise with counterfeit documents, and they, they needed guys that knew what a counterfeit passport or green card or whatever uh, looked like. So uh, I went over to the FBI, and the thing that that did that, that helped me is uh, all the agents there had top-secret clearances. So your your top-secret clearance, uh, you know, if it's still active when you leave the government, usually they're active for five years, uh, it'll really help you uh, with job placement and as a as a contractor. In my first job, uh, I was a law enforcement professional one. I was a brigade level law enforcement um, subject matter expert. And we provided any kind of uh, training, information, uh, expertise to the brigade commander. And we would go out on key leader engagements with him. And if he's going to meet some um, shake or high level uh, police officer. And those jobs, you know, I'll tell you right up front what I was making back then. And uh, that job paid $252,000 a year with uh, two paid for uh, vacations for two weeks anywhere in the world. So that was a pretty good gig. Wow. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, and, you know, so for some people that are listening, uh, they're some of them were saying, yeah, that's what it was about. And others saying, that's what I'm talking about. I want to get some. So, uh, so be, before we move on with that, though, can you explain for the folks that are listening, um, I know I'm a little, still a little hazy, the difference between customs and a customs agent and Border Patrol and a Border Patrol agent? Well, uh, a Border Patrol agent is – you know, sometimes erroneously called border guards or, uh, you know, some other uh, name. I believe now when we started, uh, they were in the Department of Justice. Now they're in the Homeland Security. And you have Customs and Border Protection uh, that they're all uh, uh, part of. But there you have the customs officers that are, we used to call them inspectors. They would be at the the ports and in the airports, you know, you walk in, you've got your passport, you know, they're going to ask you, do you bring in anything in? And you go get your bag, and uh, these guys are highly trained to spotting behavior that uh, might uh, indicate that you're smuggling drugs. So those guys are there at the airports and at the land border ports. The Border Patrol agents are at the places between the land border ports primarily along the Canadian and uh, uh, Mexican border. So if someone is rejected 
you know, for entry. Uh, and they try to sneak in uh, around the back of the building. Uh, the Border Patrol, you know, would probably be there and nab the guy. Okay. These large commercial uh, loads, I've seen as many as 500 people in one massive group just charge across the border. Huh. And uh, the Border sure. Patrol agents are the guys that try to apprehend as many of them as you can. They have uh, marine assets. They patrol the Rio Grande River or out in the uh, uh, Miami Harbor in that area, and so does Customs. They also have air units, and uh, you know, the, now they're all part of that CBP uh, uh, umbrella. The Customs Special Agents, uh, we have jurisdiction to arrest people uh, anywhere in the country, um, just like the FBI would. We have more statutory authority to search uh, vessels, vehicles, and aircrafts at uh, uh, the border or what we call functional equivalents of the border Uh you know, for drugs or whatever. We work informants that um, will give us information about uh, drug smuggling groups or someone that's smuggling or, you know, it could be uh, uh, drugs, it could be money, it could be uh, outbound technology or firearms. We get involved in all that. And human trafficking is another one. Um, one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I'll tell you, like, you know, say, what is the definition of a functional equivalent of the border? Well, if a, an airplane flies in from Colombia and they're not, they, and they cross the border, they're not at the border. They might land in Chicago. We can still go out to that plane, search every single person, look, take out every nut and bolt of that aircraft if we have reason to believe that there's uh, narcotics on the on the airplane. We can also do the same at ships. If a ship comes in in New York City, um, we can go on board and search that ship, look for whatever contraband. No other federal agency has that authority. They're bound by the Fourth Amendment, and they have to get a warrant to do it. Huh. Customs uh, officers don't. Interesting. Okay. So uh, Customs and Border Patrol is that new – um, agency created when the Department of Homeland Security was created. Uh, well, when I say Customs and Border Patrol were created, it, it, they, they they merged. They became one big entity, but they still have two distinct uh, purposes. Is that correct? Primarily, yes. The Border Patrol is looking for uh, aliens, uh, but now that they've merged, uh, you know, they're looking for aliens and any kind of contraband that's going to cross the border. Uh, a lot of times people may try to smuggle something that, that's uh, uh, highly dutiable, so they're going to try to cheat the, the government out of out of duty. They, they say, you know, when I was a student at Fletzy, uh, that the primary job of customs is to protect the revenue of the United States. Hmm. And uh, that's back before they had income tax. The only way that the government took money in was from customs revenues. Interesting. So this – so customs, also customs has a long uh, history. Yeah, we're the oldest uh, law enforcement agency in the government founded in 1789. No kidding. Wow. Yep. I had no idea. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So uh, with that, um, so Customs and Border Patrol, so would it be more likely uh, for a Customs Special Agent or Customs Agents to get involved with something that the Border Patrol agents stumbled across or came across than the other way around? Yeah, it's what, it's what normally happens. They, let's say a, a customs inspector finds dope at the, at the border uh, in a suitcase. They don't have the um, authority to take that case uh, for prosecution. They have to call the special agents, we come out, 
uh, we're trained to uh, interrogate uh, these uh, these violators. We also uh, collect evidence. You know, you could take anything. Guy says, "Hey, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I never touched that. I don't have any idea that there was cocaine in my bag." Well, we could take that over to the forensics lab, and if we get his prints off ten bricks, I guess what? You know, <laughs> uh, he's probably not telling you the truth. But anyway, the customs agents or special agents, we take those cases to the U.S. Attorney's Office and we present them for prosecution. Some Sometimes uh, if you have a defendant, the defendant wants to cooperate and he says, yeah, I'll tell you exactly where I was going to take this. Then we do what's called a controlled delivery and then we will take that dope wherever it's going to go. We usually call uh, our colleagues at DEA and uh, once uh, that next step has been apprehended, then DEA takes uh, that case from then on. You know, you might deliver dope to 10 different people, hmm. so you'll have all those different defendants. Okay. So and that was going to be my next question then, is at what point uh, does Customs and or Border Patrol become involved with other federal agencies and vice versa? Yeah, all the time. Wow. Okay. And because of our search authority, uh, they usually will have one of us on any federal task force because they might say, hey, we need a uh, uh, search warrant to go and search this, that, or the other. And it may be a situation where we don't. So we can come in, search, seize, and you know, then at that point, you know, they're just assisting. They could be just uh, providing security or surveillance or whatever. But by and large, uh, you know, every task force has uh, a custom special agent or a border patrol agent on the task force. Wow. Okay. Uh, now, are we now when you say that they have them on a task force? Are we talking just here in within the United States and it's I don't want to call them territories, but Alaska and Hawaii um, and, and territory, the one territory for sure, uh, the islands down there. Uh, other, I mean, are we, is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about also around the world? Well, we have uh, our guys stationed in places like uh, Puerto Rico, for example. We have a heavy uh, marine presence there. So uh have a big uh, boat unit there in uh, Mayaguez and Fajardo, and you have people at the airport. Uh, Virgin Islands, same thing. Then, uh, you know, we, we have um, agents that are assigned places like uh, Ketchikan, Alaska, to search or to process cruise ships. Uh, but, I, you know, I just don't know if they have – uh, special agent there, you know, I, I'm not familiar with it. I've been gone for a little bit, so things may have changed. But in every embassy all over the world, there is uh, an ICE representative uh, there, you know, a special agent from, uh, from ICE. Hmm. Um, you also have them there from the FBI and DEA. Uh, you have the Central Intelligence Agency and, and uh, the uh, diplomatic security guys. We all work together. So, um, and a lot of times you may, if you, let's say I had a case one time where they were bringing in uh, ecstasy from Amsterdam, and I wanted to find out where this place was. We had an agent there assigned to the embassy, so I'd send him. Uh, a request for a collateral investigation and telling them what I wanted and if he could take some pictures for me. And, you know, he could go out and try to locate this place to, so I could determine if it actually existed. And, uh, you know, we can uh, work with our uh, counterparts um, uh, in in these foreign countries and uh, we get, uh, like Interpol, we, we work closely with them and uh, uh, even some of the intelligence organizations. Hmm. Wow, goodness. <laughs> uh, I would never have figured, but, you know, it makes sense now that I think about it, looking back while you're talking about that, 
I do remember a couple few places uh, where there were a lot of those, uh, I'll just call them mystery men, okay? Um, yeah. One or two, maybe more than that, would, you know, tell you when you're talking, yeah, this is who I work for and this is kind of what I do. But a lot more of them was like, it never really was made clear. And you're, and, uh, but you knew they were, you know, probably with this government agency or that government agency, but now it makes a lot more sense. Um, ever since 9-11, a lot of that changed, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, many of the agencies that were in the Treasury Department, for example, they all came over to um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Customs is one. Uh, uh, the Legacy Immigration and Naturalization Service uh, is another one. The Secret Service. Hmm. Uh, they all they all came over, uh, and uh, ATF was in. Treasury, but they went to the Department of Justice. Now they're alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. Hmm. Okay. So now has that, uh, not the right word, but I'm going to use the term jostling around, maneuvering of the agencies from one department to another, has that had um, a positive effect? Well, yeah, you know, yes and no. You know, people are resistant to change, um, and uh, I know that a lot of the the uh, older agents, uh, like me, you know, we most of us we came from the border patrol. That was usually where everyone started, and then if you were lucky enough to get picked up by customs, uh, you know, then uh, that's where you went. Uh, it 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 gave some of the guys with uh, uh, border patrol and and the uh, immigration service it gave them a higher grade so we we bumped them up a, a grade level uh, when I was a border patrol agent we were GS nines now they're GS twelves huh. and uh, you know you and I would encourage anybody because they really need border patrol agents uh, to go on usajobs.gov and you know apply because um you know you have to be an american citizen if you can speak spanish that's that's even better because you're going to definitely use it if you're you know in good physical condition in fact you you know you i know you're in the marines our our uh, uh commissioner for the border patrol uh was general chapman he was commandant of the marine corps and uh he wanted the training to be like uh uh, Marine Corps boot camp. Uh, thanks a lot. You know, uh, so we did a lot. We did a lot of running and uh, jumping over barriers and stuff. So uh, that job, you know, if if you if you decide you want to apply, um, you know, in four or five years, you know, you'd be making a hundred thousand dollars. So I mean, that's wow. pretty good money. It's a great career and it's a fun, fun job. Wow. You know, uh, I do, I know there's guys out there that I've talked to and heard through the grapevine were considering and thinking about, uh, say, Border Patrol, for example. Um, but I know mm -hmm. one guy for sure that I loosely call a friend. We kind of are. I mean, we get along really well, and I have no reason to not trust the guy. I mean, you know, he, he's covered my back. But he's a Border Patrol agent. I don't remember exactly where he works or what he does. Um, he, you know, he claims his work. He, he's only been at it now maybe for about two years. It's a little mundane. He says a little routine, but you know, he's only been there one or two years. Uh, but he loves it. Uh, -huh. uh it's a, he, you know, good, stable position, job. He likes what he does. Um, so, you know, and, in the few times that somebody's asked me and I've turned them on to him, he said, yeah, I'd love to talk to him because the border patrol needs agents. Uh, you know, we need people. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's and that's a very important job here in the United States. Uh, I don't think people really realize um, just how important that that aspect of, for lack of a better term, law enforcement um, is uh, in, in not just keeping out the illegal aliens. A lot of stuff, the human trafficking, the drugs. Uh, and anything else that's going on that's a little hinky and shouldn't be in here. I mean, you guys are kind of like a yeah, first line defense, right. right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, um, I still, and my class uh, session was the 117th session, 
And I think now there are there are like there are four hundred or something. But hmm. uh, I I have lifelong friends that that I've made in the Border Patrol that were in my uh, my class, and uh, you know we're a very very tight group of guys. And I've seen several of them over in uh, uh, you know these various war zones, and uh, uh, you know it, it is really a a, a good job. Uh, you know, uh, of all things, I was a fisherman when uh, when I applied for this job. I used to take a civil service test. And uh, one time I was fishing off North Carolina, and there were about like 20-foot waves, and we couldn't go anywhere because it was so rough, so you throw the anchor out. And I waited a week for the weather to subside before we could even move. Wow. And I remember laying there looking up at those waves saying, you know what? There's got to be a better way to make a living than this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can kind of uh, uh, was it, uh, sympathize or empathize anyway, because uh, I the, yeah. summer, the summer I graduated from high school, I went to the Aleutian Islands and worked on a crab processor. So, oh my God, <laughs> for, yeah. that, for that so summer, you know. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Um, I don't talk about it much, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally get it. But I, I anyway, I don't want to go into that. But so, um, so going from your all all the things you, you've done uh, as a federal agent and throughout your career. Uh, uh-huh. You finally made the transition in 2007 uh, to take on contracting. You retired uh, from federal. Did you retire from federal service? Yeah, yes, I retired from federal service. I had like 29 years and change on the job. Wow. Okay. So. Uh, and I get a pension too, by the way. Well, I was going to ask, but I figured that went without saying. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and that's got to be helpful. I mean, that that helps a little bit, right? Sure, absolutely. It does it pays my bills when I'm not doing anything else? Right. Okay. Uh, so the transition from being a federal agent to being a contractor. Can you explain to folks what that was like for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I got a call uh, from a, a friend of mine that said, hey, you ever hear about this company? And so, uh, you know, he said, they're paying big money to send guys over to Iraq. And the thing that, that really made me go, it wasn't so much the money, although the money's good, but, you know, I kept seeing these kids getting blown up and killed, uh, you know, day in and day out on the news. And I thought, you know, I've got some expertise that I can bring to the table here because we were uh, assigned to a counter IED uh, operation. Hmm. And, you know, honestly, I thought, you know, I'm an old guy. You know, I've lived a good life. And if the Lord decides to call me home, then, you know, that's that. But if I could just save one American mom and dad from getting that dreaded knock at the door and a husband wife also – that your son or daughter has been killed in in um, Iraq or Afghanistan. If I could just prevent one person from getting that dreaded knock at the door, you know, then I would have had a successful mission. That was my primary motivation for going. Wow. And, you know, uh, the, the transition really wasn't that difficult. You know, I'd been trained to do a job, uh, a lot of, a lot of street smarts and, you know, when you go over there, you're, you know, you're, you're, you use our street smarts. I mean, you know what a scumbag looks like in America, just like you know what one looks like over there. They look the same, you know? And, and I mean, there's no difference. And it's what you do. You look at that look in their eye, and I mean, you know that that guy's not up to any good. Right. So, uh, you know, we, we, we showed some of these, um, Soldiers, for example, how to do uh, sensitive site exploitation. So the Marines were really big on this. And uh, if an ID blows up, uh, uh, you go around and you collect the bomb blast component parts and you take them over to the forensics lab that we had in several of the big bases. I was at Spiker, which is a big one. So um, 
if you could get DNA or fingerprint that matched uh, one of the bad guys, then I would go over to the brigade commander and ask for a kill capture order. He would sign off on it. I'd show him the evidence and and uh, give it to ODA, and they'd go out and whack this guy. Uh, and he would. And if he ever killed an American, uh, I mean, they would be on him relentlessly to make sure that he never hurt another American. So they were very, you know, very, we were we were very serious about the work, and they were very serious about the work. And they didn't like the bad guys didn't like to see us come around. I'll bet. <laughs> I'll bet. And they had uh, plenty of tricks up their sleeves to try and. Uh, slow things down, didn't they? Sure. You know, I mean, it's a dog-eat-dog dog over there. A lot of things, uh, uh, we would collect their telephones. We wouldn't let them bring their telephones in uh, into the, the compound. Then you would have the Domex guys. They would download that stuff, and you could find out if uh, some guy that you're dealing with that you think is an, an honest Joe, uh, you know, maybe he's calling – you know, 10 guys that uh, you have kill capture orders on, you know, so huh. you never know. And we had certain technologies that if um, you're using your telephone and you're out in the middle of nowhere, you know, Uncle Sam has got a lot of whiz-bang technology and you just might get a JDAM dropped on your head. So, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's rewarding, too. Right. Yeah, well, on those two points, I mean, uh, that was that was one of a number of things that uh, if you wanted to test where the guy was at, uh, tell him you need his phone. Um, and, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the looks on their eyes uh, said a lot. Um, and, and the more resistance they put up as you pressed it, uh, the more you certain you were right um, about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I, I remember uh, talking with some of those guys, and, and I won't go into it, but there was one – one minister or general, whatever it was, with the Iraqis, that uh, he had somebody in his uh, entourage that we ended up catching because of that. Uh, so yeah, uh -huh. that's that's some amazing stuff, uh, you know. But uh, so so you spent four years now. You spent in those four years uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, earlier uh, offline. You and I were talking about that, and you spent two in Iraq and two in Afghanistan, correct? Right. My first. Uh... Uh, 18 months, I did uh, six embedded with uh, uh, the 3rd Brigade at Schofield Barracks, and then we shoved off and were a solid year in uh, Iraq the first time. Then the second time, uh, I was embedded with uh, the Special Troops Transition Team on the Iran-Iraq border. I was there for 11 months, and then I went to Afghanistan as a uh, DEA mentor to the Afghan counter-narcotics group in Kunduz, which is about 30 miles from the border with Tajikistan. And we would train these uh, narcotics police, show them how to cultivate informants and pay informants and work undercover, you know, and then go out and, and actually make uh, seizures, uh, seizures and um, try to knock over some of the uh, the dope labs they they had, and then I was seven months. I, I got back not all that long ago. I was the police logistics coordinator for seven of the worst provinces in uh, in Afghanistan. Hmm. Um, I, I guess now I would just say that you know everybody's pulling out, and uh, uh, number one, some of these. Big money jobs, uh, they've kind of dried up, but they do have uh, some of these jobs that, you know, pay well over a hundred grand, uh, which, you know, in the scheme of things is, is not all that bad. But in Afghanistan, if anyone's thinking about going over there, I would caution them uh, to just consider that uh, with a with a drawdown, uh, you know, a lot of Taliban that have uh, retaken the, um, the the country. And uh, for us, it was not safe to drive overland anywhere, and I didn't. We, we would fly to uh, advise or engage and then uh, 
come back to our base. I was at Combat uh, Outpost Lightning mm-hmm. and uh, near Vardez. And, you know, that mission is probably just about over. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the Taliban are very lethal, and there's just so much corruption that I just don't personally feel that uh, that government is going to survive because, you know, they rip the people off more than the Taliban does. So, you know, wow. it, it is what it is. You know, uh, that's a, a topic of discussion that, that comes up a lot between uh, guys that have been over there and uh, most of us uh, pretty much in agreement with what you're saying that, that, you know, so much of it either does not get reported in the media or it gets underreported or when it gets reported, it's like, what? You missed the point. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, my, uh, my job is to call balls and strikes and, uh, you know, I call them like I see them. So, um, it's, it's pretty bad over there. And you got to figure too, 90% of the world's heroin comes from Afghanistan still. It's been that way, you know, for before we got there, and it's that way now. And really the only time they had a decrease was when the uh, Taliban uh, had control of the country. But uh, it's, you know, they don't don't have any other natural resource, so that's what they do to make a living. Right, and and that's another thing that's come up too. It's kind of like, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, that's their crop. That's their cash cow, if you will. That's how they make their living. That's it. Uh, but on yep. the other hand, it's like, look at all the misery it causes around the world, directly or indirectly. Uh, but, and, and, you know, that brings up the, the consternating point about, well, should we be there or not? Should we pull out or not? You know, um, and, you know, and, and viewpoints differ uh, for, a ver- for a variety of reasons. But your perspective and and from your experience, uh, I'm assuming you're um, suggesting, uh, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, that, uh, you know, that, I mean, if we want to keep a stable, safe environment, uh, you know, here in La La Land, America, uh, we kind of need to be out there and doing what we've been doing. Yes? No? Something else? We need to, we need to keep some kind of a residual force that can... Uh, assist the Afghans, uh, you know, with special missions. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's very difficult, though, um, in the, when the big cash cow uh, leaves. For example, we have, at, at the peak, we had vehicles and aircraft and, you know, the, and a lot of fuel to run those vehicles and aircraft. And uh, fuel theft is, like, huge. Hmm. So, um, you know, if they were going to take fuel from one place to another, they would divert the vehicle, pump the uh, fuel out, or most of it, and fill it up with water. So when it was actually gauged, you'd say, yeah, I've got so many thousands of liters of fuel, and the fuel's contaminated. So they would put it in the tank, and when they pump it out in a vehicle or a generator blows it up huh. and uh, but they don't care because uncle sam is going to fix it and wow. this ridiculousness just you know just never ends and uh finally we've got some guys in there some general officers that have had about enough of that and uh you know they're really um putting the 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 breaks on these kinds of uh, of operations. But we keep a small force there, you know, and then at some point, though, um, uh, we may be ready to let the Afghans have their own uh, way of life, let them sort it out, and, uh, um, you know, keep a few troops, you know, close by. They don't necessarily have to be in Afghanistan. You know, they can be... Uh, Kuwait or Qatar or Bahrain or wherever, you know, but it's the USA has a long arm, so if they really want to get you, trust me, they'll get you. <laughs> yeah, well, and that, yeah, what you're saying is is absolutely correct there on on uh, the long reach. They used to call it the long reach of the uh, of the law, but uh, it's uh, that's, that's it, <laughs> right? Um, so you know, but. 
the conversation, the argument, the, you know, discussions about um, <clears throat> them taking care of things on their own. I mean, ultimately, at some point, um, unless we're going to move in and, and uh, claim dominion or however you want to parcel it, um, ultimately, they have to sort it out themselves. But the problem with just throwing our hands up in the air and walking away and saying, you guys take care of it, it's your problem, is it does impact us at some point sooner or later, and it may impact us in a way that uh, most folks weren't weren't expecting. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. It's it's not quite time to do that. Uh, but you know, the, the the time will come when uh when we when we will. And um you know, they the the Afghans, you know, basically, you know, they want the same thing we want. You know, they just want to be left alone and, you know, be able to earn a living and not get blown up when they go to the market. And uh, you know, they they have uh i think the largest lithium deposit uh in the world and if you if you can just get security um you know then foreign investors will come to the country and uh you know the high tide lifts all boats you know they'll employ people and and uh uh help their their economy with these investments they also have gemstones like i've seen uh emeralds and uh rubies things like that so um you know but you know at some point you too you know you've got to you've got to deal with uh, uh opium and it's just kind of a thorny subject hmm. right well you know that afghanistan in particular since we're talking about that i mean that's uh all the rich rich resources that they have there um because I was going to ask, what is it that is the big draw with the foreign nations um, that are in there? Because you talked about the lithium mines and, and the precious gems and, and uh, to some extent oil. But, I mean, there, there's a lot of foreign players in there anyway, in, including all the terrorists. You know, and when people ask, what's the big attraction? What's the big draw? Why do people keep messing? Why do they go in there and want to own this place? Um, do you have any perspective on that? You know, uh, Rudyard Kipling in 1800 said that that was the graveyard of empires. And, uh, you know, he's probably right. I just don't know what it is. Maybe it's their geographical location, you know, in the old Silk uh, Road. Um, and, you know, I just I just don't know. Um you know the the people are industrious. You know they work. Uh, you know they could be a source of labor. If I guess if you had any kind of uh, real industry there, uh, where you know they could earn a livable wage. You just wouldn't go there and you know uh, exploit them. I know the the Chinese they they border China way up in the north in a province called ba Bagashan, and. Uh, they, uh, I know the Chinese have, you know, got some kind of mining uh, rights up there, and they seem to get along with the Afghans fine. So, uh, you know, but it's it's way up, and I and I, I guess that at some point, you know, people will uh, see the value there, and you know, the government will hopefully want to do the right thing for the people. Um, so that's. Just my take on it. You know, I, I, I have no idea. I'm not a, a diplomat, I'm afraid. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say that my experience uh, from that personal uh, perspective about the people of Afghanistan is similar to yours. And a lot of guys I've talked with, probably the same with you, uh, you know, we kind of hearken the same thing that we just said. They, they just they want to be left alone in peace. They want to get on with their lives. And like you said, wake up in the morning, go to the mar the market, uh, you know, go to their festival at night, whatever, and, and not be shot and blown up, uh, and not have all these you know foreign invaders in there uh, trying to uh, take control of everything. Uh, so, why do you have a perspective on why it's so difficult for the from the government side to say, you know? Because the people want it. You know that. You hear them. They talk about it. Uh, why is it so difficult? I mean, is 
I mean, I I never understood it. It's like I'm talking to these guys. Like you know what's going on. Why don't you guys yeah. put an end to it? Why don't you stop it? You know, and they say, well, the only way we could would be to let the Taliban and other groups like that take over. But we've seen what happens when when we let them do that. Um, yeah. Well, we're not going to let that happen. I don't. I don't think. Uh, uh, I actually, you know, I, again, I'm not a diplomat, but I, I'm, a, I am a student of Genghis Khan, and that's the way I think that you know you deal with these kind of people like that, you know, ISIS and others. Uh, you give them a little of that Genghis Khan uh, cold steel, and uh, you know they'll come around. There was a story. Um, and again, I you know was in Mongolia, uh, where Genghis Khan is revered. But in Iraq, uh, a thousand years ago, they sent some assassins to to kill him, and they were captured and obviously tortured. Uh, and and the plot was revealed. So Genghis Khan took his army, went to Baghdad, and killed one million people uh, as a result. And to this very day, the Iraqis talk about that. Uh, they remember it like it was yesterday. And guess what? Nobody screws with the Mongolians, you know? <laughs> uh, and it's kind of funny. They were complaining because we had Mongolian guards uh, guarding our general officers there uh, in, in Baghdad. And they were complaining because they still remember those guys from a thousand years ago and making the Tigris River run red for, you know, a week. So wow. um, that's my way of taking care of some of these, these issues. However, uh, I think I might be a little over the top. Uh, I tend to, especially when an American soldier is killed, I just uh, tend to go ballistic uh, with that, and, and especially the insider shootings where a soldier walks past one of these guys that he's been training, the guy shoots him in the back of the head. Uh, stuff like that just drives me nuts. Right. And, uh, um, there, that that's probably how I would deal with things. But it's good that I'm not in charge. <laughs> uh, but you well, know, here's another thing. You hear, I did. You know, he said, "Oh, well, these guys are." They're Muslims. They're they're maniacs, and da da da. da you know, <clears throat> I can tell you that in my experience, uh, the Muslims that I have met and uh, interact with them every day are some of the nicest, certainly the most hospitable people on earth. You go to a Muslim guy's house; he's gonna invite you to dinner, and I mean, it's a it's a big deal. Now, I can say this. When I was out in the field, I always, no doubt in my mind, that if somebody tried to hurt me, and I got shot at all the time, uh, I would have 20 guys on top of me like a football team trying to protect me. I mean, they really, these guys were real, real brothers. So, um, you know, and, I, and I'm in contact with some of them even today. But, I mean, they, um, you know, they're, they're just like, you know, you're, your squad mates, you know, they, they'll do anything to protect you. And that's the way I felt with them. You know, it's interesting you, you mentioned that um, because uh, that region of the world uh, tends to be very pragmatic. Some uh, have used the term fatalistic, um, mm -hmm. but it's based on their culture, which is based on the religion the, uh, and, and their big book is the Quran. And and, yeah. and I'm, I've got a long ways to go to finish it. Uh, it's one of the four or five holy texts that I've read. And uh, but it's interesting when you read it, and then you think back to the times you're talking about. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, that it makes even more sense now because it, it's constantly hearkening on uh, helping the stranger and, and and one thing another, and you know, being polite and kind to him. Um, but woe unto thee uh, if if you spite them or wrong them, <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah, no, I think I think you're right, and, you know. But that harsh that harsh reality of that part of the world, and it's not. I mean, there's other parts of this world that 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 live by a similar, you know, creed, you know, where might makes right, 
Uh, sometimes it just has to be. And for those that haven't been there and experienced it in the raw, uh, unscripted without, you know, some Hollywood fable attached to it, uh, it, it, it can be really eye-opening. And after you get through the frustration to realize that the only way, there's only two things you can do. You're either going to walk away from it and let them sort it out, or you're going to walk in there and, uh, I'm not going to bleep this out, but you're either going to go in there and kick ass or you're going to walk away. I mean, that's the only thing you can do. You got, you got two options, basically, right? Yeah. Well, do you have, do you have time for a quick story? Yeah, absolutely. I had a, an interpreter and, and I, and I am embedded with, uh, Afghans, uh, and they rotated out of their, the, the narcotics police every 30 days. So I got to know all of them. I had an interpreter. His name was Najib. And we were going to go out on an interdiction mission. Uh, so I'm looking uh, at, at his boots and I noticed that his toes are sticking out of his boots and there's snow on the ground. So I said, Hey, Najib, uh, when you go out in the field, I said, uh, with your toes sticking out of your boots, don't, uh, don't they get cold? He goes, Oh, yeah, they get cold. <laughs> and I said, Well, why don't you come by my hooch and uh, let me see if I can help you. I'm getting ready to leave in a couple of months and I've got these brand new uh, uh, 5'11 zip up the side boots those Afghans love. I said try these on and uh, I said if they don't fit you don't take them but if they fit you you can have them. So he tries them on he says yeah yeah they, they you know fit really well and uh, he says well how much do you want for them and I said nothing and he said what do you mean nothing? These things cost like over a hundred American dollars. I said, yeah. I said, let me, let me just tell you this. You know, I told your colonel that I would never ask you guys to do something I wouldn't do myself. And I would always be at the front of the line, the last to leave when, uh, when we went out. I says, but let me tell you this. I says, what kind of a Christian brother would I be to my Muslim brother if I let him go out in the snow? with no no shoes i said that, that's a sin so he goes oh thank you so he goes to the meeting and they got all the muckety mucks there uh from the afghan side they said hey man where do you get those boots and he says uh mr joe gave them to me and he says yeah he says what do you have to give him he said nothing so what do you mean nothing those boots cost over a hundred dollars and and he says this is what he said to me he said uh hey what kind of a uh, a Christian brother would I be to my Muslim brother if I let you go out in the snow with no shoes? Mm. He said that. And they said, yeah. So every time I would see these guys, they would hug me. I'm, I'm serious. Wow. And, and, and that story got all the way down to their colonel in Kabul. And it's, it's like this. They don't judge you so much by what you say you're going to do. They judge you by what you actually do. Right. So that's that's my story uh, to them. As long as you treat them nice and you treat them with respect and, and dignity and do what's right by them, those guys will, you know, follow you up any hill. Amen. Um, I I and plenty of others have had, I'm sure, similar experiences, and you're right on. That, and that's one of the things that that I try to touch upon is that, you know, people are people around the world. And just because we, you know, I mean, there's plenty of guys out there that say you can't trust an Iraqi, you can't trust an Afghan, you can't, you know, yada, 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 down the line. It's like, well, that's pretty jaded. I mean, I understand where some of these guys are coming from and why they why they become that way. But you and I have met plenty uh, where you could and you realize they're just like you and me. They just have a different skin tone, they're in a different country, they speak a different language, but ultimately we all speak the same language, human. Okay. And You're absolutely uh, right. So uh and, yeah, I I made plenty of uh quote unquote friends out there in the real world because of those, you know, just being a you know, just treating them right. And I think that makes a huge difference and goes a very long way. And I think you touched upon something that is very important for people to remember. Uh, whether it's now or in the future, it will help you. It will help you to be successful. If you are a contractor and you go over there, just treat them like you would treat anyone else, and uh, everything else will will work its way out. I mean, if you're if you're in a place and you've got ISIS everywhere, that's a different story. They're kind of combatants and 
you know, we'll take care of them. But uh, if you can do something nice for somebody, it doesn't cost anything. So do it. Right. Well, and it goes back to what you said earlier, uh, the, impo- the, the importance of being able to distinguish the good person from the bad person. Um, and that's yeah. not always easy, but once you can do that, yeah. that makes a big difference. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, so, okay, Joe, uh, so we're, we're approaching wrap-up time. Um, I know you've got a schedule you need to keep to. Uh, so, and maybe you already did this, but as a, is there a final, I don't know, takeaway, golden nugget, um, a pearl of wisdom you would like to live, leave people with? Sure. If you guys are looking for um, jobs overseas as contractors, uh, you have to have a good resume first. Uh, I've used a guy uh, on uh, Danger Zone Jobs, uh, Mr. Beaver, who did mine. I get a hit every time I send it out, so it's probably the best 150 bucks that you can spend. Mm. So that that's that's the first thing. Uh, you have to have something that's going to make that uh, recruiter or project manager who's got to jump out at him. So uh, make sure you look at the position description and you try to write that resume around uh, a position description. Mm-hmm. Um, Danger Zone Jobs is one of the – we had talked about that, Scott. Uh, that's that's a, um, a for-pay uh, directory, if you will, of about 150 different uh, uh, defense contracting companies uh, that are hiring. Uh, so I would look at that. Uh, uh, they're the most legitimate ones. There are a lot that come up that uh, are bogus. So uh, you never send money off or anything like that, anything of value uh, for uh, a, a job lead. Don't ever do that. Look and see if anybody from uh, other reputable companies, some big oil companies, Gulf Oil, ExxonMobil, some of these – they have security people uh, in their staff, uh, and they're all they're all over the world. Uh, look up international police advisors on the on the internet, and it'll show you several that that uh, you know may have uh, several companies that have uh, uh, openings. Uh, we are we're scaling down in Iraq and Afghanistan now. Uh, the big money jobs were going to make $200,000, $250,000. Those jobs seem to have all dried up, believe me, or I'd be after one of them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if we have a conflict somewhere, um, you know, they, they're they always hiring um, contractors. Some of the big companies like DynCorp International, PAE, uh, Triple Canopy, um, Academy, uh, some of those companies, those are the ones that, that you can look up on the, on the internet. Uh, uh, Danger Zone Jobs will also tell you, I think, weekly, uh, if, uh, who's got a contract, you know, which companies were awarded these big contracts. KBR, Fleur, companies like that. They have hundreds of jobs. Uh, you know that that are that are posted. If you younger guys, uh, you're you're under 35. If you're if you're out and you're looking for a, a, a good law enforcement job, the U.S. Border Patrol is a good agency to 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 start with. Uh, uh, also, the Customs and Border Protection they have several different positions uh, within. Uh, that uh, agency. Uh, we have the best canine uh, officers in the world. These dogs can smell, you know, a jelly bean from a hundred miles away. These guys. <laughs> uh, so if you are a military canine officer, uh, look at us first. Uh, we're we're really good. The the uniform division of the Secret Service is hiring guys. Go over there, learn how to. Uh, run protection, and then, um, you know, after a couple of years, you get a little bit of experience, you can uh, apply to be a special agent. There are higher grades. Mm. 
there are there are just all kinds of uh, of uh, agencies, the U.S. Marshals, even the FBI. Uh, you know, they they're hiring, so they're trying to, um, I guess, reinvent themselves after all the stuff that's uh, gone by. But there are a lot of jobs out there, and uh, I think that your program, Scott, will really help uh, some of these veterans who are getting out. Uh, to, to look around and, and, and find good jobs for their family. I'm just saying for me, if, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm an employer and I'm looking to hire, I'm not going to hire anybody before I hire a veteran. Um, those guys have been there, done that, and they never, ever complain. Ten years I've been doing this and I've never heard one single soldier complain. That's even where we're getting incoming in the bunker. They don't complain. Wow. So a uh, lot to be said uh, for that. So um, you're doing a great job in, in uh, uh, you know, putting together uh, this podcast and, and just letting people know and um, hoping if I haven't screwed this up too badly that maybe you'll invite me back someday. <laughs> Joe, it has been my absolute pleasure, and I would love to have you back for another episode. <laughs> you got it. Let there be it. let there be no question about that. Um, yeah. The, so to to put a, a wrap on this, folks, uh, what he's saying is that, uh, and we'll talk. You know, there's a lot of people giving me a lot of uh, some good points, a lot of uh, good feedback, and Joe hit on some of them. There's a lot of resources out there for guys and gals that are looking for you know, that next thing, what do I do now? How do I transition? And, and we haven't touched on those a lot, but we're working on getting there. And, and we're starting that little dribble in the faucet with what he's talking about, uh, DangerZoneJobs.com. William Beaver, the owner of that, he's been around for a while. Uh, he and I first made contact in 2007. Um, and, uh, and Joe's right. There's a lot of circumspect stuff out there. So, uh, but Danger Zone Jobs is not one of them. Uh, USAJobs.gov. I mean, that that's kind of you know the standard there for government jobs. Uh, there's shooter jobs out there. Hasn't been around as long, but uh, you know they're they're, they're making a splash. Uh, so there's plenty of resources. And we'll, we'll name more. Uh, we'll try to post them. But uh, so I want to thank uh, as we as we bring this to a close. I want to thank my guest again, Joe Wright, for making time to share his experiences with us on O'Connor's to Contractor's Life. And I want to thank you, the listening audience, for taking time out of your day to tune in and listen to this episode, because without you, none of this really matters. And I lastly want to thank Mr. William Beaver again and the good folks over there at Danger Zone Jobs for their help and support on this podcast and all the things they've done for the people trying to get their first job in the defense sector as a contractor and their next one and next one and so on. So with that said, folks, remember to be careful what you wish for. Stay frosty, stay safe. And until next time, keep it real. <laughs>